Hey, uh, just glad y'all are here today. We're, uh, we're continuing with a series of messages that Donnie started for us last week uh, called Kings, and you saw that epic-sounding uh, video there. I told Ben when we were t- coming up this, I said, I don't care what the video is, I just want the music to sound like Lord of the Rings. And so he came up with that. So that was awesome. Good job, Ben, on that. That was really cool. Hey, uh, before we jump into the message, let me tell you a couple things coming up that, that I want you to know about. Coming up towards the end of next month, uh, it's almost August, but it's not quite yet August. So at the end of August, it's actually going to be August 24th, we're going uh, to have baptism at our property out on uh, Highway 290. That's coming up towards the end of the month. And I'm telling you that for a couple of reasons. One is go ahead and plan to be there that afternoon for baptism. We always have a great time. We have, I don't know what we're going to eat yet, but we, we have something to eat too, and we make it a big party. But the other thing is, if you uh, have accepted Christ, have, have become a follower of Jesus at some point and have never been baptized, have never experienced that, uh, we want you to participate in that. And we're, we're going to have some information out on the table next week for you that will answer any of your questions you have. We're actually going to, on the 17th, the Sunday before baptism, we're going to have a whole message dedicated that day to why baptism, what is baptism all about, so that you can, uh, you can get your questions answered then as well. But just want you to know about that. If you've got anyone that you know that needs to be baptized or if you want to participate in that, please let us know at the office and we will, we will get you on the list to be baptized. The other thing coming up is uh, a week from next Sunday, we're going to have volunteer orientation. And uh, we're going to start doing a volunteer orientation once a month, every single month. And this is for folks who are brand new volunteers, never volunteered. Or if you've been here and you've been volunteering since day one, and when the first time we turned the lights on in this building, you were here setting up the screen or doing whatever it is that you do, we want you to go through that as well. So uh, uh, volunteer orientation is coming up. Registration for that is online. It's already going on. I know we got about 20 people already signed up. And uh, so we're going to do one of those every month. So if you don't get in on the first one, be sure you sign up for the next one. But uh, that's for everyone, everyone who volunteers, whatever it is that you do. Well, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want you to go ahead and find 2 Kings. If you need to find that in your, in your phone or, or on your iPad, or if you've got a real uh, old-timey Bible, which actual with pages that went through a printing press, find 2 Kings. That's in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 10 today. And, uh, and we're, we're continuing this series that we started last week. It's a short series we're doing about kings. Now, if you've, I don't know how much Bible you've read. Um, if you've read all of it, if you've read all of the Old Testament, you know that there were a bunch of kings in the old times. There's a bunch of kings mentioned in the Bible. In fact, uh, there were so many kings that, that after a while, though, it kind of gets confusing. And one of the things that can be confusing is we've got four different books in the Bible, First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, and they all kind of tell the same stories. But one of the things that you'll find out is, is that sometimes a guy who is named one thing in First Chronicles, he's called something else in First Kings. And so it kind of gets confusing because sometimes these guys went by more than one name. I guess that's what you could do when you were a king and you were really important. You could just go by a lot of different names. And so, so sometimes when we read through that, it can, it can be confusing. And let me tell you just a, real quickly a little bit about the history of, of the nation of Israel, which is what, what the most of the story of the Old Testament is about, is about the story of the nation of Israel. Let me tell you just a little bit about the history of them having a king. See, from the beginning, it was never God's intention for Israel to ever have a king. Uh, in fact, what he wanted for the nation of Israel is that he would be their king. 
And so they would be what we call today a theocracy. So they would be governed by God. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a dictatorship. It wouldn't be a democracy. It was a theocracy. God is the king, and, and that was what his desire was from day one. Well, one of the things that the, the people of Israel started to do after they, after they got out of Egypt, they had been slaves in Egypt, and Moses had led them out of Egypt. Moses was not a king. He was just the leader that that time he was acted more as a prophet uh, of God who would speak to the people. And, uh, and so when, when they got out of Egypt and, and they started to, to establish themselves and, and they got into the promised land and, and started to be a, a nation where they were settling down, one of the things the people started to say was is they wanted a king. And so they would constantly go to God and they'd say, we want a king. And their reasoning was is they wanted to be like the other nations around them. And the other nations had a king, and they felt like that the other nations were more secure because they had a king, and they did not have a king. And so what they were really saying, even though they might not have realized it, what they were actually saying to God was, is that we trust the power of a human king in these other countries more than we trust your power. You are leading us as God, but but we can't see you. We want a king that we can see, that we can bow down to, that we can build a palace for, and that's what what we want. And so even though it was never God's intention, God did something with the Israelites that sometimes he does with us. And God gave them what they wanted, even though it was not what was best for them. Did you know God does that sometimes? See, sometimes I hear people talk about God as if everything that happens to us is God's will somehow because it happened. And so, well, if God didn't want that to happen, it must not want to happen. And I'm like, you don't understand God at all. Because sometimes there are things that we beg for, we ask for, that we arrange things for, that we plan for, and it's not what God's will is, but sometimes God will say, if you want that so bad, it's going to be bad for you, it's going to take you down a path I never wanted you to go, but guess what, I'm going to let you walk that path. Now the great thing about God is, is that when we get to the other end of that path where we've totally ruined our lives, we've totally walked away from what He wanted for us, the good thing is He's down at the other end of that path waiting for us. And that's what you find out later about the children of Israel because ultimately the king that, that, that would be the king of the children of Israel and the king of all of us was Jesus and he was going to come later and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But, but so it was never God's intention for Israel to have a king, but they wanted one so he gave it to them. Now the first three kings of, of Israel you've probably heard of. There were guys that were named Saul, David, and Solomon. You've probably heard of all of those. I know you've heard of David probably and Solomon. Those are the most famous of the Israelite kings. Saul you might not have ever heard of. But, but the Saul, David, and Solomon. Now after Solomon it gets crazy. Now here's what happened. Solomon had this son who, who wasn't real bright. And, uh, and he became king. And one of the things that he did, which is something that a lot of young people do, and I did it when I was young, is that Solomon and, uh, Solomon's son, instead of listening to the advice of the wise, older people in the country, he listened to his buddies. And his buddies started giving him bad advice. And so guess what happened when Solomon's son took his buddy's advice instead of the old wise people's advice? What happened was is the nation actually divided. So now you no longer just had the nation of Israel, you had the nation of Israel and you had the nation of Judah. 
And so when you're reading through the Old Testament, you want to talk about getting confused. It really gets confusing because now all of a sudden you're trying to remember who the king of Israel was. And then at the same time, there was a different king of Judah. And so Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah, they were the people like us. They were the southern kingdom. They drank sweet tea and they went fishing on the weekends and watched NASCAR and and listened to the Almond Brothers. And that's where the people from the south were, right? And so... So that you had, you had the nation of Israel and you had the nation of Judah. Now, in Judah was Jerusalem, which was the capital, which was where the temple was built. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So you've got this divided kingdom. So you've got all these different kings. It's hard to remember their names. I, I, would, I would be willing to bet that if I told you today I had $5,000 that I would pay you if you could name me five kings of Israel or Judah that were not named Saul, David, and Solomon, none of you could do it. You'd be like, okay, yeah, Cliff, I can take that challenge. Well, you got Josiah. I remember him one time hearing about him. I think he became king when he was a little kid. And then you got Jehoshaphat. I've heard of that because of jumping Jehoshaphat. And then you got that dude. What was that guy that Donnie talked about last week? It started with a J. Uh, was it Jay-Z? No, it was, uh, what was that? Oh, yeah, Jehoram. It was him. And, and after that, you probably wouldn't be able to name five. I couldn't name five, and I try to study the Bible to, to teach y'all. But if it just came up to me on the spot, name five kings of Israel other than Saul, David, and Solomon, I wouldn't be able to do it. And so, but one of the things that as we were talking about doing this, this, uh, this series of messages is that even though you've got all these kings that you don't know who they are, there's some things we can learn from them. And here's the reason why you don't know who anybody was other than Saul, David, and Solomon. For the most part, the kings of Israel and Judah did not follow God for the most part. And so they, none of them did anything that made them memorable for us. None of them, none of them made great strides for the kingdom of God. None of them were doing things that, that later on we would say, we want to be them. I mean, there were a, a couple here and there, but for the most part, the kings of Israel and kings of Judah, they, they walked their own path. They were leading the nation of God, but they were not leading it in the way that God would have them to lead it. And so most of them became obsessed with the power of the position of king instead of fearing the one who put them in that position. See, the only reason they were a king is because God allowed them to be king. But instead of fearing that God and honoring that God who put them in that position, they instead became obsessed with keeping that position and maintaining that position. So today I want us to talk about another one of these kings that chances are you've never heard of, His name also starts with a J. I'm not sure what was going on during this period of time. Last week, Donnie talked about Jehoram. This guy had a, Jehoram had a son, and that's the guy we're going to talk about today, and this guy's name is Jehu. Not not Dr. Who, but Jehu. It's J-E-H-U, Jehu. And so so today we're going to talk a little bit about Jehu, and he's in 2 Kings chapter 10, and and we're going to look at, there's a, one of the things that as you read through 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, A lot of these kings, it gets to the end of their life and it tells stuff that they did and then it kind of gives a summary statement like here's what they, like last week Donnie's summary statement of Jehoram was that he died to no one's regret, which was awful. And it also talked about how he had a disease of the bowels and his bowels came out of his body, which I cannot believe Donnie didn't spend more time breaking that down last week. I was hoping you would. But, but so let's look today. Jehu did not have that bad of a time when he died, evidently. But let's look today at Jehu and what it says about Jehu and, and, and the, the ending statement of his life. So if you've got a Bible, if you don't look on the screen, Second Kings 
chapter 10, verse 28. And I'm going to skip from 28, then I'm going to skip down to 30, then go back to 29. So let's start with 28. And it says this, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Now let's stop right there. Now, now here, if, for those of you that, that grew up going to Sunday school, you probably heard about Baal. Uh, if you didn't grow up going to Sunday school, Baal, you're, you're wondering what in the world is Baal. Baal was a pagan god that the people of Israel had been worshiping for years. Not all the people of Israel, but it was a big problem in Israel. And so the, the worship of Baal in Israel was kind of like uh, it was kind of like the national debt is to, today. You know, the national debt just keeps getting passed down from president to president, and then each president can blame the last president and say it's not his fault because it was here when he got here. The worship of Baal was the same thing. Every king that came into power, the worship of Baal was already going on. It was something they inherited as a problem in their kingdom. And so it says here that that the Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. See, the people of Israel and the kings of Israel didn't seem to mind that much that, that pagan worship was going on in their country, but it bothered God greatly. Why did it bother God greatly? Well, there's this thing called the first commandment. Where Remember the first commandment? God said, you shall have no other gods other than me. And here is the people who are his chosen people who he's rescued from slavery, and they are actively worshiping a false god who doesn't even exist and they are giving their time, they're giving their efforts, they're giving their resources to this false god. And so it says here that, that Jehu had wiped this out. Now, now, how did that happen? Well, when Jehu was being uh, um, ordained, I was about to say ordained, um, anointed as king or put in, installed as king when they were making him king, that this prophet came to him and he said, Jehu, one of the things you're going to do as a king is you're going to wipe out all of Ahab's descendants. Now, Ahab was this king of Israel who, if there was a BuzzFeed list of the 25 most evil kings of Israel, Ahab would be right at the top. He would, he would be number one or two if, as most evil Israelite kings ever. And, and, and during the time of Ahab, the, 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 uh, the practice of, of Baal worship, it grew more than it had ever grown before. More people started worshiping Baal. It became a big thing. And so when he became king, when Jehu became king, the, the, uh, the person that was anointing him said, listen, you're going to wipe out Ahab's descendants. You're going to get rid of them. Because Ahab was long gone. He was dead and gone. But listen to what Ahab had. Ahab had 70 sons. He was, he was active, all right? 70 sons. And, and those 70 sons were still alive. And those 70 sons were influencing the people of Israel to still live and act as if Ahab were king. And Ahab was such an evil king that his wife even got famous. And, and his wife is famous still today that if someone calls a woman by his wife's name, we all know that's bad. Does anyone want to guess what Ahab's wife's name was? Jezebel. That's right. So even today, if you call someone Jezebel, you better be running because that's a bad thing. That's how bad Ahab was. Even his wife was famous for being bad. And so, so Jehu becomes king, and he does exactly what the prophet said he should do. He totally destroys all 70 of Ahab's sons. I mean, he was zealous. He was doing what God wanted him to do. He was eliminating the influence of Ahab from the country. Not only did he eliminate the influence of Ahab from the country, but he also he got rid of all the prophets of Baal. He, he, he got rid of every single one of them. Not only did he get rid of the prophets of Baal, but he went into the temple 
where, where people worshiped Baal and they had this big pillar, this big column that they would all gather around and bow down to and lay sacrifices at the bottom of it. He took the pillar outside and he burned it. Then the, the building that was the temple of Baal, he had that torn down and destroyed and it was just a pile of rubble. And then you know what he did on top of that? I mean, he was really going hardcore to eliminate Baal. He made the place where the temple of Baal used to be, he made it a public bathroom. So people could literally go in and pee on the place where people used to worship Baal. I think that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's like the ultimate end. We're not doing this anymore. This was a bad thing. We're getting rid of it. So he was zealous for God. He was going to do exactly what God wanted him to do. And it says that he did that. He wiped out Baal from Israel. But look at verse 30. Skip down to verse 30. And this is what it tells us that this was God's response to him wiping out Baal from Israel. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and you have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So this was something that was very important to God, this Baal worship, getting rid of it. And all the other kings other than Jehu up to this point, they had either promoted Baal worship or they had tolerated Baal worship. And so Jehu had kind of distinguished himself from the previous kings to say, I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of it. And so this was a good thing. God was happy with him, said, you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes. And, and so Jehu, it seems like now that in his reign, all is good. He's following God and, and the, the, the nation of Israel is where it should be. But go back to, to uh, verse 29. Because there's something that's inserted there when it talks about this final statement of Jehu's life. And it says this, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. Now let me tell you real quick. After the kingdom split, remember I told you a while ago you had the kingdom of Israel, then it split into two countries. Remember what is the northern king, Israel? Uh, the northern kingdom, what's the southern kingdom? Judah, all right, and that's where Jerusalem was. So after it split, this guy named Jeroboam becomes king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, he was concerned, remember what I told you about the kings a while ago? What are they most concerned with? Are they most concerned with following God? No, they're most concerned with holding on to their position. They're most concerned with continuing to be a king. And so Jeroboam got scared and he said, you know what? I'm the king of Israel. And if the people of Israel go to worship in Jerusalem, which was in Judah, if they will, because at that time you had to go to the temple once a year, you took your sacrifice. He said, I don't want them going down to to Judah, going to the enemy territory to worship God. He said, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish my own religion. And so what he did was is he made a bunch of golden calves and just like what happened at the base of the mountain when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments and Lot made these calves out of the fire, if you remember that story, and you remember what Lot told the Israelites? He said, this is, these are now your gods. This is who brought you out of Egypt. Je, uh, Je, uh, who was it? I'm forgetting his name. Jeroboam did the exact same thing. He made golden calves and he said, these are now your gods, this is who you worship. And so there was a group of people in Israel that started to worship the golden calves. They weren't Baal worshipers, but they were no longer worshiping God, they were worshiping golden calves. And so Jehu, when he comes to power, he got rid of the Baal worshipers, but he allowed this other thing to go on. He allowed this other pagan practice to continue. See, Jehu got to, to a point where he had, he had done what God wanted, but he got to a point and he said, I'm not going any further than that. 
I got rid of Baal worship. I got rid of Ahab's descendants, but that's all I'm doing. I'm going to let this other thing go on. I'm going to let this continue. And, and so the question for me when I think about, we look at the life of Jehu, and the question I want you to wrestle with today and that I think I need to wrestle with is this. How committed does God expect us to be? I mean, when you think about it, really, how committed does he expect us to be to him? Because when I, when I read this story, part of me thinks, ah, God's being a little harsh on Jehu here. I mean, he got rid of Baal worship. That had been going on for years. It was a huge problem. He got rid of all the descendants of Ahab. This was, this was not a pretty job. It was not an easy job to do. And, and Jehu did that. He did exactly what God told him to do when he was being anointed as king. Why is God making such a big deal about this other thing? Couldn't he let the next king handle that? I mean, couldn't Jehu? Jehu worked hard. Now he should just be able to relax. Whoo, man, I got rid of Baal worship. That was a tough thing to do. I'm kind of good now. Me and God are good. I mean, how committed really does God expect Jehu to be? And how committed does he expect us to be? But the thing that, that when we look at this that becomes obvious is, is that God doesn't believe in grading on a curve. I don't know about y'all, but when I was in school, I loved teachers that graded on a curve. Because when you're in that, which when I was first through 12th grade, I was kind of in that, on a test, I was in that like 70 to 85 range most tests I took. And so I loved a curve where it's like, hey, we might get eight extra points on this thing. And if I got a 75, that brings me up into the 80s. And then I'm good because I can go home and say, I'm in the 80 percentile of smartness at my school, right? And, and so well, I love, and, and then, you know, I don't know if you were like me, but, but we always tried to mock and make fun of the little girl in the class that ruined the curve for everybody. And we would say things to her like, why do you have to make a hundred all the time? Why can't you miss a few for us? And that kind of, we were just, it was terrible to do that. But that's what we did. And so, but I love teachers that graded on a curve. And I think sometimes we look at God and we think God's like one of those teachers that grades on a curve and we think, you know what, I've been pretty committed. I've been more committed than most people around me. I I think I'm okay. And we hope that in the end God's going to grade this whole thing on a curve. But God doesn't grade on a curve. In fact, God has impossibly high standards. See, the standard that God has for His people is perfection. It's perfection. It really is. And maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, wait a minute, Cliff, I know you're teaching from the Old Testament today. Isn't that an Old Testament thing that God expects? That sounds really Old Testament, Cliff. That, that doesn't sound like the forgiving nature of Jesus. How can God demand perfection? Well, let me tell you how I know God demands perfection because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said himself, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, obviously, Jehu fell short of this standard. And obviously, I fall short of this standard. And and so do you. See, Jehu did what, what all of us do, I think. Jehu drew lines in the sand and said, I'm not going any further in my commitment to God than that. I've been extremely committed up to this point, and that's it. That's as far as I go, God. I'm not going farther than that. I'm not going up to Bethel and Dan and getting rid of the golden calves. I've already gotten rid of Baal worship. I've already gotten rid of the the descendants of Ahab. There were 70 of them. And that's that's it. That's as far as I go. 
And so the other question I would want to ask you today is, where do, where do we draw lines in our commitment? Where do we draw lines in our commitment? See, we might not ever say the words that I'm saying. We might not ever say out loud, um, God, that's as far as I'm going. But we say it by our actions. We say it by what we choose to do and, and choose not to do. And so the question is, where do we draw those lines? See, I think a lot of times we, we get to a point and, and we, think, we think we're doing great. And that's what happened with Jehu. Jehu boiled following God down to a couple of things. He boiled it down to getting rid of Ahab's descendants, getting rid of the prophets of Baal, getting rid of Baal worship. And that to him was good. And, what, and, and by that standard, and, and by the standard of, of comparing himself to the other kings that had come before him, he was. He was killing it. He was doing an awesome job as the king of Israel according to that standard. But he was judging himself on an on a inaccurate standard. And see, sometimes we can boil following God down to just a couple of things. And the thing is, is all of our things are different. I might think three or four things are important about following God, and you might think some others are. And maybe for you, you're thinking, okay, here's what I'm going to do to follow God. I'm going to send a shoebox to Franklin Graham and Operation Christmas Child at Christmas. I'm going to try to come to church at least twice a month, and, and I'm going to volunteer at Turn It Up or Halloween Hoopla, and then I'm good. And, and that's good. And, and you know what? If you do all those things, you can probably look around and you can find about nine out of ten people you know and you're probably doing better than they are. And you might think, that's it. I, I'm doing great. But then you will say to yourself or I will say to myself, I'm going to do all these things, but then I'm drawing the line here. I, I'm not going to cross this line right here when it comes to forgiving someone who's obviously hurt me and did it on purpose. I'm not going to cross that line. I'm going to hold on to this grudge. I know God calls me to do that. I know the scripture says to do that. I know Cliff and Donnie talk about forgiveness from the stage, but I'm not crossing that line. God's going to have to be fine with me being right here. Or it might be, I'm not going to work on my marriage. I'm just going to walk away instead, or, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to give up on it because I'm not going to cross that line because that's too hard. Or I'm not going to give sacrificially. I'm just going to give a little bit that I got, but all that stuff they talk about 10% and more, man, that's got to be crazy. I'm not crossing that line. I'm going to stay on this side. And God, you're just going to have to be fine with how far I've gone with my commitment, but I'm not going as far as you've called me to go. See, that's, that's what happened to Jehu. And then when we do that, we still are able to look around and say, but I'm still better than that person. I'm still better than them. And man, I've been at church three times this week, and I hadn't seen three times this month, and I hadn't seen them all summer. They've been at the beach all summer, and I've been here worshiping God. Look at how good I'm doing, God. But you got this big line that you've drawn that you're not crossing because you've decided that's as far as you're going to go. When I was a teenager, uh, me and my dad would butt heads from time to time. I know none of the rest of you ever did that with your father when you were a teenager. But uh, we would butt heads from time to time, and, and it was always about stupid stuff because I was being pretty stupid. And, and so, um, so I remember one of the things, and, and I don't know how many times I said this to my dad. I, I was kind of dumb, I guess, because I guess I thought the more times I said it, he was going to finally see my side of it. But, but I would say things and, and wanting to do something, and, and my response to my father when he said, no, that's not going to happen, would be, but... Dad, everybody else gets to do this. You know, I'd say, Dad, I'm the only guy in the 11th grade that doesn't do this. 
And a lot of times it was about stuff like staying out. And I'd, how, why do I have to come in? Why can't I just come in whenever I want? Everybody else can stay out as late as they want, that kind of stuff. And my dad is the most patient man I've ever known. And uh, my dad, I, I ne- he never raised his voice. He never yelled at me. And my dad would just say, I'm not concerned with what everybody else is doing. That's what he would say over and over again. I'm not concerned with what everybody else is doing. And then he would follow it up with, this is the way we're going to do it in this house. And he would say that every time. And again, I would come back to him about two weeks later, hoping, I guess, that he was going to say, oh, wait, everybody else is doing it. Why didn't you say that before? Go ahead, Cliff, stay out all night, get arrested, you know, do whatever you want to do. And, uh, and so, but, but here, was, here was what my dad was doing, and I didn't even realize it at the time, and I don't even know if he ever thought it out. But here's what my dad was doing by saying what he said. When he said, I'm not concerned with what everybody else was doing, the first thing he was doing, he was establishing his authority in our house. He was saying, it doesn't matter to me what all these other people's parents do. In this house, I'm the authority. He was establishing his authority in our house. The second thing that he was doing when he said, I'm not concerned with what they're doing, is that he said, we're going to live by a different standard in this house. Maybe everybody else is doing that. But in this house, we live by a different standard than those other people live by. Those are the two things he was establishing. He was establishing his authority, and he was establishing that there was a different standard in the Marshall household than there was for other people's households. And that's exactly what God has done for us. And that's exactly what God was doing in the time of of the kings of Israel, in the time of the kings of Judah. He was saying, I am the authority in your life. And if you want to look around at everybody else and say, well, look at the way they're living. Why do they get to do that? I want to be more like them. I want to be more like what I see on television. I want to be more about what, like what I read about on Facebook or the Internet. I want to be, live that kind of life. And God's saying, I'm not concerned with them. I'm concerned with being your authority. I'm the authority in your life. And I have established a different way of living for you. I have a standard of living that you're supposed to live up to. And those people aren't living it that way because they have chosen to have someone else as their authority. But in your life, I'm your authority. That's what God is telling us. And that's what God was telling Jehu at the time and he was telling the children of Israel at the time. So, so here's, the, here's the problem that we have. God is our authority. His standard is perfection. He, he, has, he has outlined how we're supposed to live in Scripture, and, and all of us in here would admit, and, and, we, and I'll raise both hands and admit that, that we fall short. I fall short of the standard of perfection. I fall short of what is written in Scripture. So what do we do about that? If that's the standard, and, and God has, is the authority, and He's not going to back off of His standards for us, what do we do about that? What, how do we solve that problem? Do we just give up and just live however we want? Well, in some ways we do give up. But we don't give up and live however we want. What we do is we give up and we say, I cannot do this on my own. And we turn to the one who is perfection. We turn to the only one who's ever lived on this earth and lived up to the standard, lived up to every single thing that's written in the New Testament. He lived up to it, he lived it out, and then he went and he died on a cross so that we could, and his name's Jesus. That is our only hope 
for living up to the standard of God. See, I'll never be perfect. Never. No matter how much I tell my wife that I am, I'll never be perfect. And, and my only hope is to, is to hold on and cling to Jesus and, and try to live as much like he wants me to live as possible and to go to him every day and ask for forgiveness and to ask for strength to live this life. And that's the only hope I have and it's the only hope any of you have. I don't, know, I don't know who you are, why you walked in here today, but whatever is going on in your life, I want you to understand that if you are trying to live this life on your own, and trying to be good enough on your own to please God and somehow earn His love and all that kind of stuff, you're never going to be able to do it. Because there's nothing in the world that you can do to make God love you more than He already does. There's nothing in the world you can do to make God love you less than He already does. Our only hope is in Jesus and what He did on the cross. And that's what Jehu didn't understand at the time. Of course, Jesus had not appeared on earth when Jehu was here. But the the idea of trusting in God for your salvation, it was already there. That wasn't, Jesus didn't invent that. That was already there. And, And God was speaking to the kings of Israel about that. And Jehu just didn't get it. And then if you look at 2 Kings 10, 31, when it's kind of the final statement of Jehu's life, it says this. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. I love that phrase at the first part of that verse when it says, walk in the law of the Lord. Now, who's considered Israel's greatest king? We talked about a while ago. Who would you say is Israel's greatest king? You can say it out loud. It's not a trick question. David. Almost anybody you ask would say, David is the greatest king of Israel. Now, David was a, a, he was a, he was a warrior king. He, he commanded armies, and they went in, and they, they took over countries, and he was almost undefeated in battle, and they even sang songs. They sang this song that said, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So he was the greatest warrior of all time. But that's not what made him the greatest king. And his son Solomon kind of outshone David when it comes to amassing riches and building. I mean, Solomon built the palace. He built the temple. He, he did more than David when it came to building stuff. But Solomon was not the greatest for that. See, see, what made David the greatest king was the fact that, that God said of David, God said, David is a man after my own heart. That what made, and this, and this was a guy David, who committed adultery. And not only committed adultery, he had the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with, he had him murdered. And God said of that guy, of a murderer and an adulterer, he said, this is a guy that's after my own heart. Because what David understood that Jehu never understood is that David understood that that walking with God is a a day-by-day process that that following God is a lifelong pursuit that it, that it's that that you 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 walk with him today and, and there'll be days when you fall short but you get up again tomorrow and you start that day again and you go back to Jesus and you say I need you I still need you I still can't do this without you I've trusted in you to save me from my sins and now I'm trusting you to get me through this day I'm trusting in you to help me with this conversation i got to have with this jerk I work with today. 
I'm trusting in you to help me with this marriage that me and my wife were always at each other's throats and I'm thinking of throwing in the towel and walking out. I'm trusting in you to help me work that out. I'm trusting you to help me raise these kids because they're stupid and I can't believe I had such stupid kids that do stupid things and it must mean that I'm a stupid person. And so God, please help me to overcome my problem with these kids and and I know that they're blessings from you but they're driving me crazy. And I'm trusting in you to help me deal with living in a society where every time I turn around I feel like I need to buy a new car and I feel uh, every, just walking around looking at people and I need a bigger phone and then a smaller phone and then a faster phone and all this stuff and I'm trusting in you to help me get through all of that. And see, that's the only way that we can make it through this life. The only way that I can try to be a father and a husband and a pastor and a friend and a human being and just a productive member of society is to go to Jesus and say, I need your help. I can't do it. I've trusted in you to save me from my sins and I want to trust you to help me get through Monday and then Tuesday and on and on it goes. Following God is a lifelong pursuit. And the thing is, it's important not just for us, but it's important because we all have influence. The last part of verse 31 says, Jehu did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Donnie talked about this last week when he talked about the king that that he taught on, that that king had an opportunity to be an influence. Jehu was just the same. He had an opportunity to be an influence, and he was an influence. He just influenced the nation of Israel to worship golden calves. It says he made Israel to sin. And I have an opportunity to be an influence. And you're probably looking at me and saying, well, of course you do, Cliff. You're a pastor. You're standing up here right now. All these people are listening to you. First of all, not everybody in here is listening to me. I'm looking at you. But all of us have an opportunity to be an influence, whether you're a pastor or not. You have an influence in your family. You have an influence in your school. And just in about three or four weeks, I hate to remind you of this, teenagers, but school's going to start back. I know it stinks, and I, I hate it for you. But when you walk in the door of your school on August whatever the first day is, you have an opportunity to be an influence there. You have an opportunity to be an influence in that middle school or that high school or that college campus. The rest of you, hopefully you're going to work tomorrow. Some of you are going to work tonight. you got an opportunity right there to be an influence. And so what are we going to do with these opportunities that God's put in our path? How committed does God want us to be? And where have we drawn lines in our commitment? I want you to think about those things as we leave today. And I want to encourage you to know that even as you draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going any further than this, that Jesus is right there and he is grabbing a hold of you and he's pulling you over that line. And don't fight him. If, if you said, I'm not going to forgive someone or I'm not going to work on my marriage or I'm not going to give sacrificially or I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, Jesus is right there with you and he's pulling you to do the things you said you will never, ever do.
I told God one time that I would never be a pastor. He had other ideas. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that the story of a king who lived thousands of years ago in a different place, in a different culture, spoke a different language, that even a story like that is relevant to what we're dealing with today. I believe that you want more from us than we've ever given you. And I believe that, that we have more to give you than we think we, we do. And so help me to lead this church in that way. Help us as, as people of you to, to follow you in that way. For us to, to not think about what's the least we can do, but for us to think about following you as a lifelong pursuit and that it's not just a list of tasks and we check these things off but it's it's a growing relationship with you and father i pray for those who are here today that that maybe they need to to trust jesus they need to trust the only perfect man who ever lived for the very first time to forgive them of their sins and i pray that that they would turn to you today for that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.